today's reading is from Second Chronicles 36, verses 15 to 20, the fall of Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent the word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers despite his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword of the the sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or, or women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried the Babylonian all to the articles. He sorry, he carried the he carried to Babylonian all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasure of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile the Babylonian, the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. Amen. So, a question. Does anybody know who Jonas Hanway was? Jonas Hanway. See, no pub quizzers here. Okay, what about a clue? 1750s in London. No? Okay, well, I'll tell you then. Joseph Hanway, he did what no sane English man had ever done before. He walked along the street under an umbrella. Now, I know this because there is um, a, a plaque to him in Westminster Abbey. You see, umbrellas were, were not really for men. They were for, they were for ladies because ladies are much more delicate. And, and it was inappropriate for them to get wet, but men got wet. But Jonas Hanway thought, stuff this for a lark. And he got the umbrella and he, he walked under the umbrella. And for 30 years, he was the most ridiculed man in England because he used his umbrella. Of course, now it's perfectly reasonable to have uh, an umbrella. Umbrellas are useful for a rainy day. They protect us from the elements. They stop us getting soaked to the skin. I want to suggest today that the will of God is kind of like an umbrella. When we are under God's umbrella, we are under his grace and his authority. And it protects us from harm. But if you get outside of God's umbrella, all hail can break loose. Oh, come on. It wasn't bad. Eh? It'll soon be April. If you cheat on your tax, you're stepping out from under God's umbrella. If you compromise your integrity, you're stepping out from under God's umbrella. If you cheat on your spouse, you're stepping out from under God's umbrella. And it puts you in a precarious position. 
I want to be very careful to, to kind of define the difference between penalty and consequence. When, the Bible says, when you confess your sin, that sin is forgiven and forgotten. And we come under the umbrella of God's grace because the penalty was paid in full 2,000 years ago by Christ on the cross. That's the penalty dealt with. But you still have to face the consequences of your actions. If you cheat on your taxes, you might have to deal with HMRC. Maybe not, says John, but I'm not recommending it, just in case you're wondering. If you cheat on your spouse, you're going to have to deal with your spouse, and you're going to be outside God's umbrella. It's the law of sowing and reaping, the spiritual cause and effect, and we see it everywhere. In fact, in Malachi chapter 3, it says that if we are not tithing, we're not under the umbrella of God's blessing. And it applies to lots and lots of other things. So we need to make sure that we are right here, as it were, under God's will, his authority and his grace. The author Ed Young says this, you've got to get under those things God put over you so you can get over those things God put under you. His point is, it's, it's not until you get under God's authority that you can get over some of the challenges that you might be facing in life. So, so you're thinking, where are we going with this? And that's a perfectly sensible question. Over the past few weeks, we have gone through the Old Testament and here we are at the end of the Old Testament. We've talked about the creation, the promise, the exodus, the covenant and the conquest, the kingdom and the warning. And today we're talking about the return. Israel found themselves in a place where they were not just a little bit out of God's umbrella. They were way over here. As we heard, they had, they had time and time again, they had been disobedient. And God, we, we have heard uh, over these weeks, when God says, if you do this, I will do that. If you do this, I will do that. But if you do that, I will do this. There are consequences if you do that. And they chose to ignore him. Our reading today starts, the Lord the God of their ancestors sent words to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. Again and again and again. Because that's what we've read, isn't it? You know, we started way back with Adam and Eve and they were disobedient. They did the very thing that God had told them not to do. And God had to put them out of the Garden of Eden. But they didn't just abandon them. And then we went through to, to Abraham. And Abraham, this amazing promise, through you, all people on earth are going to be blessed. But Abraham still did stupid things. He still disobeyed God. Then you get to Moses. He sees a burning bush and he goes over and God says to him, Moses, I want you to go and you're going to set my people free. And Moses went, oh, no. Don't know, why, don't know why you're asking me to do that. I can't possibly do that. God said, well, I'll go with you. 
And then he did. He set the people free. And Moses led them and they came to the sea. And what was the first thing that happened? Well, the Egyptians are coming and the sea is there. And they're going, oh, you brought us out here to die. They had seen all the miracles that God did in order to get them free. And still, their first reaction was, oh no, where's God? And time and time and time again, they did the very thing that God told them not to do. But what we discover in that is that God is so patient. Basically what he's saying is, come back under my umbrella. But they don't always listen. And so we have again and again. But as we saw last week, there are consequences for disobeying God. Second Kings 24 verse 13 says, As the Lord had declared... Nebuchadnezzar removed the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and cut up the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. Habakkuk last week, he's there and he's saying, God, why, why is this happening? I mean, why, why are you not dealing with all the evil and injustice that there is in this land around us? And God's response was, ha, you think this is bad? I'm going to do something you couldn't even begin to imagine. I'm going to send the Babylonians. And here it is. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians have come and they destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. They take away the the, the brightest and the best people. And they take them into captivity in Babylon. It's a scorched earth strategy. The year was 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar sacked the city of Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple, took the Jewish prisoners back to Babylon. And that's the storyline that many of us will be familiar with. But there's a little subplot to that. There's there's a guy there who's taken into captivity and his name is Daniel. And you might have heard of Daniel. There's a book in the Bible named after him and it tells his story. But you might also be more familiar with it because there's a story about Daniel in the lion's den and how God protects him from the lions when he is thrown in there because he has disobeyed the king and prayed to another god, his god His rise to political power actually is nothing short of miraculous. God gives him the ability to interpret dreams and he uses that gift to eventually position Daniel as second in command of the empire. This guy who's been taken as a captive. The reason that I share that is to share this. Even when your life is falling apart, God is still working his plan and his plan is still working. God always reserves a remnant and he has a way of elevating and leveraging people in strange and mysterious ways that change the course of history. There's a moment in the book of Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar's going to kill all of his wise men because they can't interpret a dream that he's had. That seems to be his strategy for everything, really. If I don't like it, kill it. It seems to be what he did. But Daniel interprets the dream. And often in the story, that's the part that we focus on. Daniel, God used Daniel and Satan. Wow, great. 
But actually what we sometimes forget is that because Daniel interpreted the dream, all of the wise men were saved. Fast forward 500 years and a star appears over a little known town called Bethlehem. And the Bible says that it was wise men who were living in the east who saw it and followed it and found Jesus. Now, of course, we have absolutely no idea where those wise men came from. But could it be that they were descendants of the wise men saved by Daniel? See, we have no idea how our lives are going to alter the course of history in the future. How our actions and decisions might make a difference in ways that we cannot possibly predict. Is it possible that that story in Daniel chapter 2 makes Matthew 2 possible? That part of the Christmas story where the wise men show up, did that happen because Daniel interpreted a dream 500 years before? Never underestimate the impact of your actions, your decisions, your gifts, your sacrifices, because with God they have the power and the potential to change nations and generations. Could it be that Daniel saved the lives of those 5th century wise men so that the 1st century wise men could save the life of Jesus. Because, you remember that part of the story, the wise men come and they're warned in a dream, don't go back to Herod, so they went a different route. But Mary and Joseph also had a dream because Herod also had a scorched earth policy because he suddenly discovered oh no there's a king that there's somebody who might rise up as an alternative to me I can't have that so my answer to that is how how old might this king be where we're going to kill all the boys every boy that's there of that age we're going to get rid of them scorched earth policy so how does a minimum wage carpenter who's just been to Bethlehem to pay his taxes, how can they afford international travel? Because they've somehow got to get to Egypt and to safety. Well, it doesn't hurt the three wise men showed up giving you gold, frankincense and myrrh that you could use. Is it possible that God, 500 years before, used Daniel to set up that divine appointment 500 years later? Now, you might say I'm getting a little carried away. And up to a point, I would agree. But maybe, maybe it's because we underestimate God's sovereignty. You see, we live, in a, we live in an instant world. Everything has to be done right now, 
for us. But we know that the Bible says God prepares in advance good works for his people to do. Before you were born, God was preparing good works for you to do. We tend to think of minutes and hours and days, maybe weeks, maybe months. Some of us, maybe a year ahead. But to a God for whom a day is like a thousand years or a thousand years are like a day, what's the difference between a day and 500 years? I think we need to think bigger. We need to think longer than we are now. God has been setting you up before the day you were born. In fact, maybe let me take that back and read Ephesians 4. Sorry, Ephesians 1 verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now, if that does not give you a sense of destiny, I don't know what will. Before the creation of the world, God chose you. That's an incredible thought. God orders our footsteps. In John's Gospel, in chapter 6, Jesus is quizzing Philip. You see, there's, there's 5,000 men, plus all the associated women and children. We don't know uh, how many of them. But all they've got to eat is five loaves and two small fish. So Jesus says, where do we get food for all of these people to eat? And Philip goes, I don't know. I mean, there's no, there's no supermarket. Do you know? Don't, I, don't, I don't know. And I love the way the Bible puts it. It says that Jesus was asking this only to test him. Sometimes, sometimes we're asked questions just, just to see how we respond. Hmm? Asked him only to test him. Why? Because he already knew that five plus two equals five and a bit thousand remainder twelve baskets. He already knew what he was going to do. He already knew that he had enough. He already knew that all of those people were going to be fed because he is a God who provides for his people. But he had to ask somebody the question, how are we going to do this? He already knew the day that Nebuchadnezzar sacked the city of Jerusalem. God knew what was going to happen. He was already setting Daniel up. Daniel didn't know that it was going to be 70 years, but God knew. And in that very same way, God is setting you and me up for his plans and his purposes. Back in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar builds a 90-foot statue of himself and had made everybody bow down to it. Now, I'm not sure what he was compensating for, but there were three conscientious objectors who were called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And they simply refuse to bow down to this statue. And so uh, they are taken and uh, they are thrown into a, a furnace. And the furnace is so hot that the, the guards who are trying to put them in the flames are killed. And they go in there and they had no idea what was going to happen. But they said, our faith is in God. And if he chooses to save us, then he will. And God already knew what he was going to do because in those flames a fourth man shows up and rescues them. And in Daniel 3.27 it says this, they saw, that is the people watching, they saw that the fire had not hardened their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on. I mean, have you ever been to a barbecue? Right? You're, you're standing here and the smoke blows in your face, right? So you move over here and the smoke blows in your face. So you move, and it doesn't matter where you go, the smoke blows in your face and you go into the house and you're stinking of smoke for hours, maybe days if you don't want any. Right? You, but you get my point. When you're near a fire, you stink of smoke. And yet here we're told, there wasn't even a smell of smoke on them. This is not just a God who rescues. It's a God who does it in a way that only he can get the credit. I suspect that there is at least one person here today, or maybe worshipping with us online, that could use a comeback. Maybe it's a, a relationship that isn't what it was or isn't what you want it to be. Might be a dream that died somewhere along the line. Maybe it's a piece of your personality that's been lost. You aren't who you were or you aren't who you want to be. And frankly, your life just doesn't measure up to what you thought it would be. Maybe you had a promise from God and it hasn't happened yet. So you've given up on it. I think God has a word for you today. When you have a setback, you don't take a step back because God is preparing a comeback. Let me say that again. When you have a setback, you don't take a step back because God is preparing a comeback. Now, how can I say that when I don't know what you're going through? Well, well, that's right. I don't know what you're going through. But I know God. He is the God of the comeback. You have to get under his umbrella. But you know that even sometimes under his umbrella, bad things happen. Jesus said that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And the promise is that if you get underneath the umbrella of God's will and God's authority and God's sovereignty and God's grace, then he will be with you and things will begin to change. So get back to the story. Here's Nebuchadnezzar. He's ruined at the city of Jerusalem. And we fast forward 70 odd years. The Persian Empire comes to Babylon and did to Babylon what Babylon did to Israel. And eventually there's a king called Cyrus and he takes the throne. And that's where we get to in the story. The people of Israel have been in exile for about 50 years by that time. And something totally unpredictable and unprecedented happens. They make a comeback. 
God brings a new leader, a new emperor, a new boss who changes everything. Second Chronicles 3, sorry, 36, 22. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord their God be with them. What we need to observe here is that if God can use a Persian king named Cyrus to build a temple to a God that he doesn't even worship, he can use anyone to do anything. And I think that's good news. God can use anybody, even your enemies, you know, the ones that are always wrong. We need to pray that God would raise up a generation of Daniels and Esthers, of Nehemiahs and Ezras, who go and rebuild, who take what was there and they, and they use it and they build it and they make it better for God. We need people who love God and trust God, who, who, who are able to interpret dreams, who are able to see what God is doing in the world and say, this is it. This is where we should go. We need those people and we need to pray that God will raise them up. We need our best and our brightest, the most devoted followers of Christ in, in the political sphere. What a disaster it is. People each other's throats. And we need the grace and the mercy and the compassion of God in all of these places. But God isn't hindered whoever is in power. It doesn't matter to him really. I don't think he gets nervous about an upcoming election because he can use the righteous and the unrighteous. But in this instance, he does the latter. Ezra 6, 22. For seven days, they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. We have to pray for our leaders We have to pray that they will do the right thing for the good of the majority. Sometimes I, when I pray, I, I don't really know what to pray. I, I open my Bible. This story reminds me of Proverbs two twenty-one and verse 1. In the Lord's hands, in the Lord's hands, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards those who please him. God's done it before and he can do it again. When I don't know what to pray, I think it's okay to pray that leaders would submit their hearts to God and commit their ways to him. I think it's okay to pray that God could change the hearts in a way that he can change a water course. And when we pray that way, I think something amazing happens. Theologian Walter Wink said that history belongs to the intercessors. That's the people who pray. It's our responsibility 
two observations there. One, God keeps his word. There's a little phrase in this passage that I think is really powerful. Verse 22 says, This happened in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1.12 says that God's watching over his word to perform it. He doesn't forget his people. He doesn't forget his promises. The second thing is that God has a good memory. There's a little phrase that is repeated quite often in the Old Testament. It's three words. And it says, for David's sake. For David's sake. In 853 BC, a king named Jehoram assumes the throne. He's the fifth king in the southern kingdom. It's been 117 years since the death of David. And it says there that Jehoram did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Actually, he had killed his brothers so that he could become king. But then what follows it is something that, that really, by human logic, makes you go, what? How on earth can that be? You just told me that he's evil. But in the next verse it says this. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. David is long gone. It's been 117 years. And God still says, but I haven't forgotten. I remember I made him a promise. I wonder if you know that God over your lifetime has done things in your life for the sake of someone else. A praying parent or a grandparent. I know that there are people praying for me and they have been for years and years. And I believe there are people who pray for me and I don't even know who they are. Let's be those people. We are the beneficiaries of the prayers that we know nothing about. We've effectively inherited cities that we didn't build, wells that we didn't dig, a harvest that we didn't plant because of of God's promise to other people. God was working long before we got on the scene. And he's using us to set up the next generation that we may never meet but who will be the beneficiaries of our prayers and our faith. God has a good memory. He doesn't forget his people. He doesn't forget his promises. The only thing that he forgets is your sin when you get under his umbrella. So in 538 BC, Zerubbabel leads a remnant of 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem. And what did they do there? The first thing that they do is they rebuild the altar to the Lord. Ezra 3.2 Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priest, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord. I, I'm not going to give you seven seven easy ways to make a comeback with the Lord. Right? I don't I don't have that. It's just one one thing. Where you start, you rebuild an altar to the Lord and you put yourself on it. That's it. That's my advice.
surrender yourself to God, to his priorities, to his plans and his purposes. It's rebuilding of the altar in Ezra. I think there's a corollary in the book of Revelation that says, I, you know, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance, but then it says, but I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Go back and rebuild an altar. If you've ever spent any time writing something on a computer, only to find that you forgot to paste the really brilliant paragraph that you cut earlier to move it to somewhere else. Oh no, what am I going to do? Well, let me tell you what you should do. Command Z. That's what you should do. Because that is undo. I found this recently because I had done that. I had had just an amazing paragraph and I was going to put it in a different chapter and then suddenly it's like, oh no, I forgot that. And I sat there in my office pressing command Z, command Z, command Z, undo, 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 undo. And I don't know, I mean, hundreds of them. And then it came up and actually it wasn't that good in the first place. (laughs) But, but, what, what a good picture of God's grace is command Z, undo, undo. Because here's what happens. Life takes a toll on us. We lose pieces of our faith here and we lose pieces of personality there. Some of our dreams get cut down to, in size. How are we ever going to get put back together when we get under God's umbrella and his grace? You see, we're told the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus came that we would have life in all its fullness. The word holy means whole. And God wants to make us whole. To put us back together. Joel 2.25 says this. I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. One of the most amazing comebacks in the Bible is the story of the prodigal son. The short version is this. Two sons, the youngest one asked for his inheritance. And in that culture, he might as well have said to his dad, I wish you were dead. And he takes the money and he disappears. He squanders it. And he ends up doing what no Jewish boy should be doing. He ends up feeding pigs. Sometimes God has to get us to the lowest place to get our attention. And the Bible says then he came to his senses. I think what happened is that he experienced a really powerful emotion and that's the emotion of nostalgia. He had gone so far and now he remembers his father. He remembers his home. He remembers who he was and who he was meant to be. And that nostalgia begins to do something in his heart. A couple of years I came across a powerful devotional by Pope Francis and it's called Nostalgia for God. And he says, how is our nostalgia for God? How is that? Are you you nostalgic for that relationship that you once had with God? Are you looking to be restored and renewed? Do you want to get back to something you had in the beginning? And he he prays that our nostalgia for God might never be quelled in our hearts. I wonder if you're here today and you have strayed a bit from God and you miss him. Well, I want you to know that he misses you too and he wants you back. And the good news is he is not a God who will scold you when you come back. Because what we discover in the story of the prodigal son is that he is waiting. He is waiting for the son to come home. There's no scolding 
there's hugs and there's kisses and there's new clothes and there's feasting. And when we come back to God, what we'll find is that he is standing there with his arms open. He is the God who runs towards us. He is the God who always meets us more than halfway. He is the God who forgives and who forgets. He is the God who hugs and kisses. He is there for us. He throws a party when we get back because that's who he is. It's the Father's heart. And so I want to invite you today to get back under God's umbrella. To be in his will for you and your life. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your long-suffering. Thank you for your patience. Thank you that you are the God who never gives up on us, the God who never turns his back on us. Thank you that you are the God whose arms are open wide. Would you give us now the courage to respond to that invitation to return, to come back under the umbrella of your plans and purposes, of your grace and your mercy, of your compassion and love, so that we would be in the right place with you. Let us build an altar right here and now and put ourselves on it, acknowledging that we belong to you and that we are yours. In Jesus' name. Amen.